Hey y'all, this episode of Stories with Shrinks contains a content warning. In this episode, we'll be discussing suicidality and abuse. If those are topics that you would not like to hear discussed, please skip this episode. Welcome back to Stories with Shrinks, where we over-psychoanalyze your favorite characters from movies, TV, and media. I'm Jennifer, she, her, hers. And I am Tyler, he, his, him. And today we are jumping back into the world of high school with the classics of John Hughes and diving all into some of those famous classic characters that he developed. But first, we have a question. So Tyler... Yes. John Hughes movies was yes. all about high school. And I think the most yes. classic example is Breakfast Club. Yeah, so, sure. At the end, we found out that each one of us is a brain, an athlete, a basket case, a princess, and a criminal. Which one are you? Tied between a brain and a basket case. For sure. I feel more basket case than brain recently, but I think it's just because I'm a little overworked. But mm-hmm. other than that, yeah, I would think I was definitely, especially in high school, I was a big old nerd. Um, mm-hmm. And I still am. Uh, but yeah, brain and basket case. Basket case is the anxiety part. And the uh, the also the part that wasn't necessarily normal compared to other people. I do got to say, Ali Sheedy in The Breakfast Club, super great. Yes. Would put Kraft and Crunch on a sandwich. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I think I would... I would empathize with the the basket case in the brain in high school too the the classic you know i'm gonna i'm gonna be all tough on the outside anxious person but then really sensitive on the inside and then the the brain the nerdy person so i hear you have a new character in this world i have a a new new client client. i do my new client so let me just oh that's weird so my client is from Ferris Bueller's sale. So let me just introduce this guy. My new client this week is Cameron Fry. Cameron Fry is an 18-year-old white European-American cisgender straight man. He is a senior in high school and experiencing symptoms of depression, including depressed mood, irritability, low self-worth, and lack of motivation. Cameron came into therapy at the urging of his friends and family following what they describe as strange behavior, which the client has yet to report on. Client states that he recently had the best day of his life, which led to him wanting to reprioritize his values. He states that his current life goal is to stand up for himself. So this is Cameron from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And I have set this uh, post-movie, probably immediately post-movie, And the reason I chose that is because this is when I think his parents would be most likely to bring him into therapy. Because for those of us who don't remember the end of this movie, Cameron destroys his dad's car. Yeah, and not like in a simple way. No, no. And also part of their house. So he's got some some issues there from family that I think would be pressuring him to go into therapy because like he's acted out in this really visible costly way financially i also stated that his friends are urging him to come to therapy because within the movie he has that whole sequence where he has like an emotional breakdown and like tries to kill himself and there's some suicidality where he is on the diving board and dives into the pool and just sinks to the bottom and ferris has to save him. he plays it off later 
at the end of that scene, but I don't think that it is a thing that he's joking about. I think he's trying to play it off after having these serious, really heavy thoughts going on for him. Mm -hmm. So moving on to treatment goals, we're going to start as always with what he came in for, what he's looking for for right now, which is standing up for himself, or what I would call self-confidence and self-worth. And then moving on to emotion regulation would be a secondary goal, given his irritability and this propensity towards destroying property. It's possible he might need some help with just feeling what he's feeling, processing it, and not behaving on it in a reactionary way. And then the last thing, the last goal, is a possible safety assessment related to the suicidality as evidenced by him trying to jump into the pool and sink to the bottom. So working through those goals, we'll start with number one, which is working on self-confidence. So my favorite way to do this is to go through a, basically a three-step process, which starts with self-acceptance, then you build up to self-compassion, and finally you build up to self-confidence. And you need those first two other steps before you can get there. And with Cameron, over the course of the movie, I don't think he has the self-acceptance piece quite yet. I also don't think he has a lot of self-compassion. So that would be where we start, is just accepting who he is right now. By the end of the movie, I actually think he's getting closer to that. Even after the mm -hmm. property is destroyed, he has that scene where, he, where Ferris is like, well, what are you going to do about this? And he goes, you know what? I'm just going to have to have a talk with my dad. And, we're gonna, and he's very calm and kind of collected, and he kind of has this idea of where he wants to go. So I think there's some self-acceptance there where he kind of learns who he is over the course of this day. And really diving back into those depression symptoms, there's a lot of theories through people who like this movie a lot that Cameron at the beginning of the movie is sick and he's actually sick. He claims that he feels like he's dying. He has got like Kleenex boxes and all this stuff around his bed when Ferris calls him and tells him we're going to go have this day out. And when he is on the day out, he no longer experiences any sickness. He's not sniffling. He's not coughing. He's not feverish. It is a theory that he is actually experiencing some body connection to symptoms of depression. So he feels sick more so because he's feeling depressed and weighed okay. down by those emotions. So we're going to start with working on self-confidence for him. He talks about wanting to reprioritize his values. And so we're going to just start talking about that and just say, okay, what does that mean for you? What were your values before? What are you want them to be now? And working narratively, sort of going, okay, so your values were this way before, and they wrote the rules for how you lived your life. So let's look at the rules. What are they? And I think Cameron's big rule is, you know, you don't stand out. Rule number two might be you follow what your parents say. Rule number three is that you should be serious about moving forward. Cameron is very much the opposite of Ferris, who Ferris is very fun-loving and, you know, kind of has this attitude of, I don't care, whereas Cameron cares about everything. So then we move into emotion regulation. And I bring this up specifically for the scene in the movie where he is in the car debating whether he's going to go see Ferris or not after Ferris calls him. He, like, hits the steering wheel and gets really, really angry, slams the car door and walks away. He comes back and ends up actually going. But there's this really emotional conflict that he has 
where he actually acts out behaviorally. That in itself is much different from what I think his parents would be wanting him to come to therapy for, which is the destruction of property, which is actually an accident. I mean, to be fair, there's still some reactionary stuff happening in that scene. He uh, is mad at his father. He's got all this pent up aggression and anger towards his father. And he starts kicking the front of the car and starts hitting the bumper. And he kind of just goes at it and like beats the crap out of the front of the car. And then it falls off the jack they have it on and reverses out of the garage through a window and down into like a little forest area that's behind their house. Because of course. But again, you see some reactionary stuff to anger. And so we might be working with that a little bit just to get him to a place where he's not reacting on his anger, where he can go, oh, I'm feeling angry right now. What do I need to do with this? Do I need to talk to somebody about it? Do I need to go punch a pillow? Uh, which is often taught to little kids for anger management. But honestly, it's really helpful for anybody of any age group. You know, pillows can't get really hurt by us punching them. And if it gets the aggression out, awesome. Another really healthy uh, version of this is weightlifting. I know that a lot of weightlifters get their aggression out by picking up heavy things and moving them around. Sports, all that kind of stuff. There are lots of different healthy venting options for anger. And finding what works for Cameron is going to be the best for his treatment and moving forward to work with these reactionary, angry outbursts that he tends to have. And then finally is the possible safety assessment. So he's got these depressed mood, low self-worth, you know, irritability and reaction. All that stuff I feel like we can discuss and talk about in the course of normal therapy, not crisis-y at all, just Talking human to human, treatment with narrative therapy probably would be what I'd go with for him. Um, maybe for the anger management stuff, some ACT stuff, because that's just how I think. But really, just digging into that and talking person to person, the thing that makes this case a little more complicated is the safety stuff. So with any case, anytime we see clients, if there's a possibility of a danger to self or others, it automatically makes that case way more complicated. Mostly because we want our clients to be safe. We want people to come in week to week. It's not the fact that, you know, clients pay us and yes, that's our job and it's all well and good. But honestly, you develop a really close bond to these people. You want them to do well. You want them to be safe. And he is going to be having some safety issues. I just foresee that happening. So I wanted to use this time, the remainder of my time for this segment, just to talk about his experience with safety and how we assess for that. And just to kind of pull the curtain back on that piece of it, because the other stuff is very typical, how you would treat depression and self-worth, that kind of stuff. But really the safety assessment. So for those who are not clinicians, when we're looking for danger to self, we are looking for some very specific stuff. The first thing is ideation or thoughts. Second thing is a plan. Third, third thing is a means so that they have access to. So if you're, you know, well, I'll go through these with an example, but uh, the last one being intent to follow through. So if we go with Cameron as an example, you know, he's got these heavy emotions. He's got this life that seems to be trapping him. I don't think he has a lot of hope about his life at the beginning of the movie up until he has the breakdown, which is what they describe it as in the movie. He doesn't really have a lot of hope for life. And so it's very possible he's sitting there on that diving board, 
going, you know what? I should just end this now. And this is something I tell clients all the time. This is something that I've dealt with personally that I'm more than comfortable talking about. Suicidality is not weakness. It's not that you're not strong enough. It's that you, your brain is looking for a way out of the pain that you're experiencing. And that's it. It's a coping skill. It's a really ineffective coping skill because good coping skills work multiple times over and over and over again. This is an ineffective one because it only works once and it works permanently for many temporary problems. And so, you know, with Cameron, I think we can see there's definitely probably the source of ideation for him. As far as a plan, I don't think he has a plan until he's sitting on that diving board and then goes, you know what? I could just fall right in. And that's what he does. So does he have access to means for that plan? His plan is to fall in and drown himself. Well, he's sitting on a diving board over a pool, so yes. And then finally, does he have the intent? Which is really the biggest one for all of these. Uh, that's, for, for me anyway, as a clinician, when I'm talking to a client with suicidality, I am mostly looking for intent. Because if that client says, oh yeah, I've got all this stuff that I'm gonna do, and then goes, but I'm never gonna do it. I, I wouldn't follow through ever. I just say this stuff because it seems like a good way to fantasize about finding a way out. It's like, okay, well, yeah, you're fantasizing about finding a way out, but you don't have any intent to follow through. Yeah. Cameron has intent to follow through. He tried, he attempted. And that's a different thing. That's an entirely different beast than just, oh, I'm having some suicidality versus I attempted suicide and now I'm trying to recover from that. And so he downplays it with a lot of humor, um, which is pretty common, actually. So, you know, Ferris goes and saves him, and his first response is, Ferris Bueller, you're my hero. Mm -hmm. And really, he's trying to make a joke of this really serious situation. So if he brought this story to me in therapy, I'd be like, all right, record scratch moment. Are you having thoughts of killing yourself? And we would have a really honest conversation about that. So I don't know if this is true for all therapists training, but in our training, this is one of the first things we were taught to do yeah. was to ask this question because it is a difficult question to ask without some practice. And so literally like, I think for my class, it was week two, maybe week three. Um, yeah. I feel like it was always a part of the conversation and then was always early on in the conversation for multiple classes throughout the whole program. Yeah. Um, and it was definitely treated as a, there's no fear of stopping and asking because asking the question doesn't make the thoughts happen. Asking the question makes the thoughts heard and real and makes it so that a conversation can be had. Yes. Because there's a big difference between fantasy and reality. And part mm -hmm. of our job is to hold up the mirror of reality and say, no, no, that's a really serious thing. We need to talk about that yeah. right now. Do not pass go, do not collect $200. We are talking about that now. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes a list of questions. Are you having thoughts of killing yourself? Yes. Okay, What do you have a plan associated with those thoughts? Sometimes it's just, yeah, I've just been having these thoughts. And it's like, for me, that's when I normalize it for the client and say, you know what, that's, you know, makes sense. You've been through a lot. 
it makes sense that you want the pain to stop. And let's look at some other options for coping with that pain versus this. But then you keep going. So do you have a plan for that? And when you're looking at the plan, you're looking for lethality. You're looking for how lethal is that plan going to be? Because across the board, attempting suicide is a really scary thing and a really hard thing for people to deal with. But there are different levels. That's just the reality of it. There's, there's, there's a difference between trying to drown yourself in a pool or taking a bunch of pills or shooting yourself in the head. One of those is more extreme than the others. And so really it's about looking for how lethal this plan is. Then going, okay, do you have access to means for that? If somebody says, hey, I wanna shoot myself in the head and you go, oh, do you own a gun? And they go, no, that's different than if they say yes. Then you ask for intent. Okay, do you want to follow through with this right now today? And sometimes clients say yes, and sometimes clients say no. Sometimes they say, I don't know, I'm not sure. And really, as our, our job as clinicians is just to hold the space throughout those questions, assess for safety, and then move forward from there. Yeah. And each location has different rules around that. So I don't want to necessarily dig into the next steps. Um, I know something that I've talked about with suicidality with clients is also the impulsivity matter of it. Where like, do you need a plan? Like yeah. if we all have means at the end of the day. Like we can go through our houses and find a means. Let's talk about impulsivity real fast. Sure. And if you're saying no plans, but high intent, that's a different conversation because if I know that you have means at home, we're going we're gonna to chat. And it's okay to have that chat. And it doesn't mean that the next steps aren't or are going to be taken. But we're going to have a chat at the very least. Yeah. I and think these, that's what was... Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, that's what's coming up with like Cameron when you're talking about it, is the impulsivity of sitting mm-hmm. on the... Um, on the diving board because he yesterday may not have had as serious of thoughts, but within those 24 hours sitting on the diving board and then acting on it immediately. That's a lot of impulsivity. Exactly. And he, he shows that impulsivity throughout the movie too. So it'd be something I'd keep an eye on as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last thing I'll say about that is the fact that after that happens in the film, he reprioritizes his life. He starts looking at his life and going, you know what, this, is what I, this isn't the life that I want to live. That's also a very normal experience for people who have attempted. There's so many different anecdotal things about, well, I, I jumped from the bridge and then I realized that all my problems were temporary, which is an actual quote from somebody who survived jumping from the Golden Gate Bridge. And so, you know, it, it's really eye-opening for a lot of people on one end but also you can develop that insight without an attempt yes so really for him it would be just about creating a safe environment where he feels comfortable talking to me about some of this stuff and not just necessarily hiding it away which is what it kind of feels like he has been doing Mm -hmm. and so I was just going to ask the question, how would you address um, safety with the dad? Sure. So I have him in this uh, vignette written as an 18-year-old because they're all seniors. Mm-hmm. So in this vignette, I have Cameron written as 18 years old. And that's because he and Ferris are both seniors in this movie. 
Uh, and Cameron seems to be a little older than Ferris. That could just be because he's got this emotional weight and Ferris seems to be a little more carefree. But I figured he's probably around 18. They're getting ready to graduate high school. I could see Cameron having his birthday earlier in the year. So it depends on if he came in on his own or if he came in through the earth. Like I, I have him saying, I have it saying he's urged by his friends and family. I don't have it saying that his family brought him. So he's 18 years old. He's an adult, technically. He would be brought in by himself. But I could also see Cameron being the kind of guy where if the people in his life said, hey, man, you probably need to go get some help. He would. Yeah. So I, you know, as far as addressing safety with the dad, I think that is a different issue in itself because he does insinuate there's some abuse happening mm-hmm. within the movie. He's an adult now. It depends if he's got siblings. Um, mm-hmm. Because if he does have siblings and his dad has access to those kids, that becomes a child protective services report. Mm-hmm. Because we, as clinicians or mandated reporters, we would have to report that because his abuser has access to children. However, let's say for sake of argument, he doesn't have any siblings. So with his dad, it becomes about navigating the aggression. And so saying, hey, like, can you talk to your dad at all? Does he, is he willing to listen? Or is it just, he's going to yell at you, he's going to try to hit you or whatever it might be. And if he's not willing to listen, then it becomes, okay, for your own safety, can you find another place to live? Mm-hmm. And what does that look like? And helping him process and navigate that. And then it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to point that out to him right away, but it might just be a thing to say, hey, maybe it's safer if you stay with somebody else for a little while, you know, not say you're going to move out and you're never going to live with your parents again, because I think that might be a little extreme to point at him at this point. Mm-hmm. But really just to say, could you crash on like somebody's couch? He's probably crashed on Ferris's couch a couple of times anyway. So. Yeah. So that's kind of where I'd go with him. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, as always, why did I choose this character, which is always the secondary question of all this. Uh, I, I just enjoy Cameron. I, I really like him as a character. He, uh, the first time I watched this movie, and I've seen this movie a lot, this is one of my mom's favorite movies. Uh, so we, we have seen it quite, a, quite a many times. Uh, I really enjoy Cameron's like outlook on life after <laughs> the movie. Yeah. Where he's like, you know what? I'm standing up for myself. I'm not, I'm not gonna take anybody's crap anymore. I'm just going to do what I need to do and be the person I want to be. And you can see he does have this joyful side that comes out throughout different moments in the movie when he calls pretending to be Sloane's father, when they're uh, in the baseball game, which is probably my favorite scene with him in the movie where he's doing the hey, bada, swing, bada. It's so good um but you can tell that there is a person who can see hope in life can see joy in life in there and is also dealing with some dark stuff and i think the reason i like him as a character is because that's very human that's how a lot of us are we're able to go out with our friends and be happy and experience real joy that doesn't make the joy fake just because other things are happening but we experience real joy with other people and yet there are these dark things that kind of loom over us because 
life is hard sometimes. And there are struggles and obstacles that we all face. For some of us, it looks like an abusive parent. For others, it looks like financial trouble. For others, it looks like you know, racism in this country. It, it depends. But the idea of a person in a film having these very real dark clouds that are over him all the time and still experiencing joy, still having a good time, still having a sense of humor, still being a person really makes me enjoy him as a character. Absolutely. Well, we're going to take a short break, but then we'll be back with another one of John Hughes' classic characters. Welcome back to Stories with Strings, where we are talking about some characters from John Hughes movies. We're going to be moving right along with the Jen segment. So Jen, why don't you tell us about the new client you have this week? Yes, I have a new client, and I'm actually seeing her at her high school itself. So we are, we are meeting while she would be on campus at her high school. Her name is Watts. She's a senior in high school. Um, she's a straight female, self-identifying tomboy, and believes that women should be allowed to dress to express any way they want. So she's an extremely independent spirit and um, for the time would be kind of rebellious and would be considered being a rebel for, for her day. She presents and expresses herself older than her actual age. And we've been working together the, the four years she's been in high school. During, I kind of predicted that her freshman year teachers would have referred her for counseling after times that she acted out in class, witnessing being bullied and uh, speculations that Watts' home life was not supportive. At first, she was very quiet and apprehensive about talking to a counselor. She has a very tough and rough exterior, not letting people in. And we began uh, meeting weekly for just a half hour with an open door to talk. Being on a school site, you don't have access to clients for sessions for very long. They have to go back to class. Um, so I'd only be able to meet for a half hour unless there was a crisis need. But she began to slowly open up and mostly about her friend Keith and how she loved music and how she hated her home life. So I'm talking about Watts from the movie, uh, Some Kind of Wonderful. Um, this is one of those John Hughes movies that I feel people either know or they have never heard of, um, I have found. And if you know it, you get a point in my book because it's one of my favorite John Hughes movies. Um, but Watts, again, um, in the movie is actually a senior in high school, but kind of going back to what we had been talking about over the years, uh, she would talk about her absent father and her relationship with her brothers. And through an assessment process, it was clear that Watts was struggling with low self-esteem as she was being bullied more often than not and put on a tougher exterior to hide how hurt she was actually feeling between home life and school life. She also reported how she was developing feelings for Keith, which she struggled with as they had been friends since third grade. By her junior year in high school, uh, she was coming to my office more often, and by senior year, she would commonly hang out for periods of time, appearing as though she was also trying to get out of class. She uh, commonly shows up with no books and uh, just holding on to her drumsticks, and at times I actually have to push her more to going to class than um, just coming in to talk. But recently, she started to talk about how she's really struggling seeing her best friend 
who she is reportedly in love with pursue another person, and not just any other person, but one of the most popular girls on campus, Miss Amanda. I see Keith and um, Watts are on from, or they're part of the poor side of town, and there's an actual divide you can see on campus between which side of, like, the railroad tracks that you come from. And she's really struggling with the fact that her best friend can't tell that she has feelings for him and doesn't share those same feelings. She talked about a time where Keith borrowed her car and ended up not using the car and forgetting about her when he promised to come back to pick her up after getting a ride from Amanda. So just feeling not only abandoned and neglected, but then on that emotional level as well as, you know, he's always been there for me and now he is trying to get this attention from somewhere else. Reporting feeling like Keith doesn't want anything to do with her and disclosed that she told him that they couldn't even hang out anymore. So really talking about how she is pushing Keith away as much as possible to avoid getting hurt. Um, And she later reported that he did come over a few days after to ask for forgiveness and is interested in helping him get Amanda. And even you can hear this throughout campus that this is just a joke that's happening. There is rumors that Amanda's ex-boyfriend is pretty upset with Keith and wants to kind of make a joke out of him as he pursues Amanda. She also told about a time where she talked him into practice kissing, because how are you going to be able to woo Amanda if you can't even kiss someone? But again, we really talked about how this was actually hurting her more, and that, you know, pretending like it's no big deal is just a defense and coping mechanism to the fact that she really wanted to be the one that he was thinking about at the time. So what's coming up this week for Watts is... She has told me that she is volunteering herself to be the driver for this big date that Keith is going to go on with Amanda. You know, I brought up the fact that she could be hurting herself more by driving them and the concept of trying to prove something to herself or to Keith. But she says she wants to be there for him in case it goes bad, given the fact that this date, in her words, is just a joke. Most of our sessions have been focused on how she can better express her feelings, increasing self-esteem and positive regards, her fears of losing her best friends, and fears of never liking someone the same way. So it'd be interesting. It'll be interesting to see how this uh, this date goes. And uh, we talked about the possibility of him actually ending up with Amanda and him not having feelings for her. Like in some ways, I feel like she wants to be that that hero that's there to pick up the pieces, but it could go the opposite way. And the possibility of rejection and also fears that what would happen if he does figure out his feelings towards her may not be something more. So from the movie point of view, I'm kind of cutting in at like the last act of the movie before the the big resolve at the end. And I feel like she would have been coming in that day of, I guess the Friday before the, the weekend date to kind of dump all of this and kind of really process what's going on. I would also be assessing for like, kind of seeing what's going on with Keith and this whole it's a joke thing and the possibility of, you know, Keith actually getting hurt from fellow students on campus and the bullying situation that's going on. We know of Amanda's ex-boyfriend on campus. He is not actually a student. So he likes to magically appear, though, and cause a ruckus in in different areas of campus. But I feel like for her, I'd be taking a more person-centered approach with the goals of therapy being just to help her feel like she has a space to come and talk, um, providing her with that unconditional positive regard in order to help increase self-esteem and self-worth. And I think that would be the two main goals of our time together. 
who we'd use music and art in session to help her find ways to express herself. One of her biggest strengths is her music passion and her passion for drumming. So being able to help like guide her in a direction to lift up her self-esteem that way and talk about finding more proactive ways to solve her problems and possibilities for herself after high school there. Um, she doesn't really have that many um, goals set for herself, kind of thinking that she's kind of just stuck in the role that she is and her life kind of revolving around if someone else will notice her and if if Keith will notice her. So actually almost helping her not relying on him for that self-worth and self-identity piece and helping her see that she's worth more than just the date at the end of the movie or the possibility of, of feelings from somebody else and her kind of owning her own story and you know, one of, I think one of Watts's greatest strengths is being such an independent spirit and willing to kind of stand out and be herself, but then also not just using that to mask pain and kind of push people away, but also using that to really stand on her own two feet and to, to take charge and not just rely on, on the best friend to be there to also save her at the end of the day. But yeah, that, that's, my, that's my view on Watts and what's going on in her life. Again, I feel like kind of from the high school counselor, therapist perspective, just kind of being there to provide that open door to talk about absent dad and friends and the bullying situation on campus with a more person-centered approach. I think the thing that came to mind for me is that, you know, there's a difference in us a little bit theoretically here that, you know, your mind went to narrative with the, the story and, you know, helping her rewrite it and all that kind of stuff. My mind went straight to feminist, okay. which is a similar, similar goals. Mm-hmm. We want to empower her, different language and different, you know, interventions. I honestly but, don't know much about feminist theory. It's, it's something that we talked on briefly in our training, but it's not something I've explored much into. Um, but I feel like it would be a a very proactive fit for her while thinking of it also from the lens of like her family wouldn't be able to afford therapy. So I feel like the only time she would get it would be like in the high school setting. Yeah. And sometimes you only have like, not saying that you can do like really meaningful, like feminist theory based therapy in a high school setting. You absolutely could, but really just wanting her one to like, just trust that like it's a space to free talk and be yourself and then from that like person-centered lens. But I think feminist theory would absolutely work well with her. Sure. Yeah. And I was, I, I think really that's just showing the difference in clinicians, the way that we think differently yeah. um, because everybody thinks and approaches these things a little differently. But yeah, again, like I, I definitely was thinking, um, you know, how to, how to help her rewrite her story. But again, just providing her that unconditional positive regard. That's the, the highlight of the person-centered approach that, you know, her just being her is enough and it doesn't matter what Keith thinks or what, you know, what the family life might say to her, but helping her see her, that in herself at the mm-hmm. end of the day. Yeah. Creating that inner sense of self rather than mm-hmm. an external. Yeah. And, you know, what I think John Hughes does so well is taking some of these classic high school and real life adulthood experiences and writing in a way where you can have moments where like in the breakfast club where they're dancing in the library to the serious conversations that adults talk about that are real but it's through high schoolers so it's more I think approachable 
and um, more relatable through the high school experience because it's what we're all experiencing, thinking and doing in high school, but very few actually talk about. And John Hughes gives the opportunity to talk about it in a very safe and meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause again, when we think of classic John Hughes movies, we always think about the light and bubbly high school aspect of it. But I think every single one of them deals with some pretty heavy topics um, mixed in there. Um, and John Hughes does a great job almost psychoanalyzing him, his, himself through with his characters um, and how, he's, how he sees the world. So before we wrap things up, what about this character spoke to you? Oh, um, when I first saw this movie, I always just loved her story. Um, kind of being the, uh, the secondary high school character, like all my friends were dating way before I was seeing guys that I liked pursuing other people. Um, I could just honestly relate to her her struggle um and how she wears her heart on her sleeve but then also will punch the dude in the face for even admitting to that (laughs) um is something I could relate to so much in high school and even into adulthood now and also that that part of me that's you know like no he is Keith is not a good person like (laughs) he is he's the, the whole uh, the whole trope of it, you know, it'd be like, you deserve so much better than that. And, you know, I just, it, it's, it's a relatable story arc for personal, mm-hmm. personal reasons. And then high school, it's fun. So yeah. much fun. <laughs> I agree with you. We all deserve somebody who's going to pick us first. Yes. I think that's the, that's the trope more than anything else. Like, Mm-hmm, absolutely um to completely spoil the movie they do have a very like oh you finally figured out my feelings moment at the end and i'm like it wouldn't it wouldn't be like a 24-hour process for something like that like if you didn't have him the, the day before he's probably not gonna have him that night <laughs> no not at all <laughs> but it's also that idea of like that's that's the story you, that's the ending to the story you would want to see but not necessarily get in real life Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of does give that classic, that classic hope, but also like, girl, go just smack him across the face and go get yourself a real dude who likes you for you and not because I finally realized it after all this time. Yeah. But those are our clients this week. That is our John Hughes. And I think we could always dive into other characters, but these are the we ones can come back to, to this most. universe for sure. Right there's so much there and again touching on the idea of most John Hughes movies take place in a high school and in so many ways high school does not end those those themes and those choices and those characters live on into early adulthood and we can relate to them to this day no matter what our age is and it's it's truly a story that outlives time but we are stories with shrinks where we over psychoanalyze your favorite characters from movies, TV, and media. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Goodbye, y'all. Take care. We'll see you next time. Stories with Shrinks is an entertainment and education podcast. Our views are our own and should not be considered canon or associated with any of the media or universes we discuss.
And thank you to Purple Planet Music for our theme song, Phoenix Rising. You can find music for all your podcasting or YouTube needs at www.purple-planet.com. Mm-hmm.